Hi, welcome to the CAR Podcast. I'm Carla Bailo, the CEO for the Center for Automotive Research. And today we're going to talk about a recap from MBS and then dig into the, the latest and greatest on the Inflation Reduction Act. Stay tuned. everyone, it's Carla Bailo from the Center for Automotive Research, and I'm joined today by Bernard Zwicky, the Director of Research here at CAR. And I think you're really going to enjoy the topics for today. We're going to talk about some of the highlights from our management briefing seminars that was just held the first week of August. And then we'll also talk about our thoughts on the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, the CHIPS Act, as we know, was also just signed by President Biden. We won't talk about that today, but perhaps in a future podcast. So, Bernard, we just finished MBS, and I know that we're all just catching our breath from that. But when you look back at the week, what are the key themes? What are those things that you kept hearing people talking about, you know, at the various social events? Yeah, so, Carl, I'll start with this. Um we had well over 100 more people there in person this year versus last year. And it's fabulous to see the industry getting back together in person again. Uh, and I think that really helped some of those conversations take place. I think the world has not quite yet figured out um, digital networking. So, you know, that being said, I think what I took away most strongly is a cautious optimism. You know, and, and it was always kind of prefaced with, you know, we've had a couple of years where each year we say, you know, we've been through the worst of it. And my goodness, things are about to get better in the second half. Uh, so there's always this little cautionary note, uh, you know, but whether we're talking about maybe some relief on semiconductor shortages, uh, vehicle inventories are recovering a little bit. Uh, we had a fabulous jobs report recently. You know, things seem to be slowly trending in the right direction, and we don't seem to be paying much of a price in terms of recessionary fears just yet. So I would describe it as cautionary optimism because all of those statistics are tentatively, cautiously pointing in the right direction. I, I found it really interesting, the one panel discussion, and perhaps the one that's been, you know, continuously... Um, you know, repeated through social media is the um, economists can no longer predict the future mm -hmm. because, you know, there's just so many different things either happening geopolitically or economically that don't make any sense. I mean, you just talked about cautious optimism and things getting better, but at the same time, we have suppliers going bankrupt. We have, you know, uh, inflation running rampant. Now, of course, it, it got a little bit lower, thankfully, last month, but it's still higher than, than anything. So people's disposable income is going down. At the same time, you see people not slowing down their buying in several different facets of their life. So it's, it's the strangest time economically that I think I've ever seen. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely, Carla. And uh, I chaired that uh, that forecast panel. And uh, it's interesting. I think it's the question I might have led with, which is how is the job of a forecaster different now than before the <laughs> pandemic? Because, 
you know, so many of the variables and even even we at CAR, you know, we, we have our own proprietary forecasts and we we have many of the same um, building blocks that the other forecasters do. And the they're still in there, but their significance is changing. And, you know, one key change for me is that in the olden days, which is 2019 and before, uh, when you forecast vehicle sales, vehicle production, you know, essentially you forecast the U.S. economy, you forecast the ability for that economy to absorb X number of vehicles. And you could assume that whatever that came back as, you know, whatever number that was, yes, the industry can build those vehicles. And suddenly in this environment, that assumption can no longer be made. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're dealing with this dichotomy where go ahead, predict the entire economy and, the, you know, the, the demand for vehicles. But that no longer means that's how many we're going to sell, even if you were completely right, um, because the supply side of the forecasts has just grown in prominence tremendously. Now, you know, is that going to be the case going forward? Are we somehow going to normalize a little bit, you know, starting next year? A lot of dubious answers there. Um, I think at the very least, we're going to be much more cautious. You know, when we see a new development, when we see movement in a given statistic, the implications of that, I think, are going to be treated much more tenderly uh, in the upcoming years. What I did see, interestingly enough, in the latest um, predictions for the yearly SAR is dwindling demand. We're starting to actually see some consumers stepping out of the market, saying it's just gotten un unaffordable for me with the average new car price nearing $48,000 and average EV starting price is $56,000. That just came out yesterday. So um, when we look at that kind of price, I mean, that, that equates to a pretty darn significant monthly payment. You you lop onto that maintenance insurance, and you're reaching a, a total zone of inaffordability for a lot of people. And for several months, no one was talking about that. Now the economists are actually starting to talk about perhaps a dwindling supply, just as the optimism for the industry is starting to come back from a supply chain standpoint. Yeah, Carlo, we're always looking at affordability, and um, we do sometimes crunch the average basket of goods, of goods that an American household spends money on, um, you know, and well before these times, the cost of healthcare had been, been growing rapidly. Uh, and also the cost of student loans was taking a chunk of those monthly budgets long ago, you know, and now we've added so much more additional pain to that. And, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. It's not even all caused by economic movement. For example, uh, there was a bout of avian flu that went through mm -hmm. the country and it raised chicken prices and food prices, you know, throughout people's budgets. And we know what that means is there's less left over for transportation. Uh, and so I have posed this question to economists, you know, are we maybe benefiting from the fact that these depressed sales that we've had since the year 2000 are keeping us from being in a cliff situation now? that we managed to kind of spread that out over a few years and therefore never had, you know, as pre precipitous a drop as we might have had. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Now, you know, it's, it's interesting to me to tie this to another panel at MBS when I had my automaker supplier panel. 
Um, I asked similar questions and one thing that the automakers said was, yes, there may be some softening among consumer demand, but that there is quite a gap to make up in fleet sales, you know, and whether that's government fleets and also the rental car agencies, um, mm -hmm. you know, the sales there have been suppressed for a very long time and demand is very strong. So hopefully, you know, while consumers go through this and hopefully come out in better shape next year, the industry can start fulfilling some of those unmet orders for fleet vehicles. And maybe that'll bring our rental car prices down. I don't know if you've rented a car recently, but it's, you know, I kind of feel like I don't want to buy it. I just want to use it for a, a small period of time, which makes, if you're going to the right location, ride sharing a much better option in general. Absolutely. Um, but um, the other topic that we kept hearing so much about was sustainability, environmental sustainability and social sustainability. I don't care what panel I was listening to, this topic arose in some way related to environmental and, you know, what, what do the new rules mean? What do our climate goals as a company, how important are they? How are we going to achieve them? Are EVs going to help us do that? What about our manufacturing plants? And then what are we doing on the social side of sustainability in terms of having the right metrics for diversity and inclusion mm -hmm. in our companies? Then the next step of that is how do I make sure in my company I'm being inclusive? And what are signs that I'm being exclusive and not even realizing it? So it seems that that got interwoven into so many discussions, even the economic discussions about mobility equity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Carla, it's interesting how it all fits together, because, for example, uh, there's a workforce shortage in not just in this industry, but in the overall economy these days. And having a diverse workforce kind of goes hand in hand with trying to rebuild uh, the workforce, uh, you know, as many companies are doing. And yes, you do see that mentioned in the same conversations as environmental sustainability. Um, there is, uh, I think, an unprecedented amount of emphasis on just being good corporate citizens. And, you know, all of those things are encapsulated by, by some of these subjects. And the one thing that I, that I often point out when I talk about these subjects is it's happening for a number of reasons, but one, especially when it comes to environmental sustainability, the Wall Street analysts are now taking a look at that when determining a company's valuation. And I think that has put mm -hmm. a lot of um, urgency behind these issues, you know, and, and the idea that, you know, it's now a bread and butter business subject. It's not just something to, to look mm -hmm. good in a corporate sustainability report or to put out in a, in a happy, positive tweet. Uh, you know, this is now an, uh, a critical element fundamentally to your company being successful. Yeah, absolutely. And your new employees or your potential new employees are taking a look at your, your statements on sustainability and looking at your data and determining, is this a company that, that I want to work for in the future? Carla, one, that's absolutely true. And I think, you know, even more true when the younger folks coming out of the educational institutions are more aware and more concerned about these things than their predecessors. And also many of them are more sought after. So they often have their pick of multiple employers. 
And, you know, we, we do hear it's not just a dollar decision anymore. Um, that notion of what kind of company is it that my work, that my energy is going to support and what kind of values, therefore, am I putting forth in society by the choice of where I work? Um, the folks that are graduating college now are much more attuned to that than previous generations. And because of the workforce shortages that we have, that carries a lot of leverage. For sure. And we had another panel um, that I led on, you know, the different generational views that we're experiencing in the workplace today. We've got everything from, you know, boomers all the way, you know, down into now, almost into Gen Ys with, you know, whole different views on, on what's anticipated. I read yesterday one of the main things being requested now by new employees from a company policy is paid time off for hangovers. And oh um, yeah, I read that. It was an Axios, actually. I read that and I thought, huh, you know, I, I lived in Japan for five years. And yes, that was an excuse. You know, you could come to work hungover and everyone would leave you alone because it was a medical condition. But, you know, we've never had that here. And I found that really interesting. Wow, that is a new one for me, Carla, <laughs> but it's a sign of the times. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to keep seeing more and more of these demands when we're in a, in a market where the, the workers have the power. Um, and, you know, these these companies are going to have to figure out how to adapt and, and how to be able to retain um, and be competitive. It, it's a whole new landscape for hiring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as more and more people also want their relationship with their company, company to be more around what is my total contribution? Uh, you know, what does my presence here really create for this company as opposed to where was I on this given day or this afternoon? And, you know, did I work 35 hours or 85 hours? That that's becoming a little bit less of a concern in terms of tracking, you know, where you're physically at or whether this job got done in the evening or on the weekend or that morning. Right. You know, exactly. and so whether you were hungover or, you know, whether you were out <laughs> surfing, that that personal time is more expected to be built in and not kind of held against you if you're fully doing your your job and making the right contributions to your employer. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, at Carna, we have unlimited PTO. We trust everyone to take time off when they need it and to balance their life as they need. And I think we'll start seeing more companies adopting that that way as we move forward. It's it's a whole new world. With that, um, you know, there's several more topics we could talk about with MBS, but the key other one that everyone was talking about was electric vehicles. And as you know, I, I um, closed the, the conference on the last day and played the song Electric Avenue because I really think that was the theme. It was all about electrification. Are we going to meet the 50% by 2030? Two deep dive sessions on about electrification and supply chain for some of these critical materials and, you know, and how the automakers are adjusting, you know, to be able to get their portfolios fully electrified in time to perhaps, you know, reach this level. And when we think about electrification, one of the things that we kept hearing over and over again was automakers can't do this alone. It's going to require some support for the infrastructure, support for research, support for um, uh, incentives, 
And I wish, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act would have, you know, been on our plate, but it just kind of came out in the middle of MBS and we couldn't talk about it. But let's spend a couple of minutes talking about those key components. So, you know, the 200,000 vehicle cap is removed. There are striations for household income. There are striations for eligibility based on vehicle cost and, or I should say vehicle price, not cost. And then there are also uh, bounds in terms of raw materials, critical materials, where those can come from and percentages. What do you think out of those four different big portions, which are livable and which are not? In my view, three of the four are livable, but I want to see what you think. Yeah, Carla, it's, it's interesting. So for example, there's a $55,000 cap on electric cars to qualify for that uh, $7,500 credit and an $80,000 cap on trucks. You know, my question is these days, what is a car and a truck? You know, for example, um, many of the utilities that we sell are unibody built. They're based on a car platform, you know, that was initially made to be a sedan and then we made a utility based on that chassis. You know, so for me, the distinction between car and truck is a very fuzzy area these days, more so than it's ever been. Don't you think they'll just use the cafe standard, though, as, as a way of defining it? I mean, fundamentally. Yeah. We'll see, but I, I agree. There's a lot of things that are yet to be defined well. Yeah, and, you know, for me, the issue is that consumers often will not see it the same way that a regulatory body does. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're going to face some very valid questions for consumers where they, in their mind, see one vehicle as very similar to another. And why does that one qualify uh, at $80,000 and this one would not? So I, see. I think mm -hmm. we're going to have that, that whole conversation. Um, you know, but it's interesting. When I looked at some of these dynamics in, in the IRA, it seems that we're striking a balance between sustainability and, you know, helping the environment with um, support for green technologies and electric vehicles, somehow balancing that against American manufacturing and maximizing mm -hmm. the amount of that that happens here. And as a result, uh, we have some content requirements. And so for battery materials, uh, by 2024, we need 40% content from North America or countries with whom we have free trade agreements. Uh, by 2029, that needs to go up to 100% content. No mm -hmm. vehicle sold right now meets that. Uh, and no vehicle even meets the 40%. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because that includes not only where the materials are from, but where they're refined as well. Exactly. And Carla, as you know, even right now, as we speak in August, um, there are many plants in North America where the vehicles that they're building are already 2023 model year. So, you know, right. in automotive terms, in terms of how long it takes to restructure a supply chain, 2024 is tomorrow. Uh, it is an mm -hmm. extremely challenging and rapid period in which to adapt. Um, and it's understandable. You know, we're hearing a lot of pushback from the industry, a lot of concerns that, um, you know, the world just doesn't work that way. And even if the automaker or supplier could react perfectly, um, there isn't a supply. Um, you know, we hear estimates. Oh, the refineries. Exactly. You know, we hear estimates that it takes 10 years to start up a mine. And then, you know, that's just to get the raw material out of the mine. You also need refining capacity to be built to handle that. Precisely. 
So I keep telling everybody, let's get recycling going faster. We don't have enough used batteries today that we'll get enough of those materials right away, but that does count. Recycling does count. Um, so the sooner we can get that going, and that should be a shorter lead time. You know, I'm just concerned when we think about mining and refining. Yes, it sounds great to have that done here, but I know a lot of states and municipalities and the EPA themselves are going to really push back on some of it. So it has to be done properly. And that's what's going to take the amount of, of lead time that we're talking about. The other aspect is, quite frankly, we have very few vehicles on the market today that re that meet the price goals that are being talked about. The F-150 Lightning, just the prices were increased astronomically. That cheapest version that was 38000 is now almost 50000 um, because of raw material escalation prices. So we need to get more and more lower price vehicles in the market. Now, we do know some are coming out, the Escape and the Bolt, of course, um, and a few others that have been announced. That will help. We've got to get these things in a reasonable range. And then even those um, vehicles that don't have the required content percentages still can get a small incentive, $37.50. And you can also get that for used vehicles, of which we don't have enough of those on the market right now either. But these things will help. But definitely to have the hockey stick that is needed to reach the 50% by 2030, putting the hamstrings on about content is going to make that a, a real tough, uh, if impossible, um, goal. I strongly agree, Carla. And for me, this issue brings up a question of what is really better for society in general? Is it more BEVs than we have now? But we can't obviously build all the BEVs that the market would demand. And are we better off hybridizing more of the fleet, you know, and the content of a lot of these difficult to obtain materials is much, much lower on a per vehicle basis. And you could get, you know, lower emissions driving to a greater percentage of the fleet faster. Yeah, there are definitely some manufacturers that are thinking that way, that are saying, let's get let's get people walked into a hybrid and then move them into battery electric at the right time. Because, and this is my thought, and it may sound silly, but our atmosphere doesn't care. They, if you're driving a certain brand, where the stuff came from, as long as you're driving something that's lower polluting, it's better for our air quality. Yeah, absolutely. And as long as, you know, the constraint really is in batteries and the related supply chains for batteries, you know, if the average person is driving, you know, let's say 10% a day of what a BEV, a full battery electric vehicle can get, that means 90% of that battery went unused, right? So, as long as sure. the constraint is around the battery and the components and the materials for it, yes, you can get so much more impact from hybridizing. And there were some just fabulous discussions about the subject for the mm -hmm. last few years, but I think they're going to be greatly amplified now with the impacts that we're going to get from the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, I fully agree with you, Bernard. And we'll, we'll talk about this again in a few weeks when we even get more feedback from the industry and, and you know see some of the comments. So thanks. I think that's the last topic we want to cover today, but I think uh, probably electrification and this IRA um, will come back at us again in future sessions. Thanks, Bernard. Thanks, Carla. Thanks, Carla.